Peace be upon you. So in 1961, the astrophysicist Frank Drake formulated what's known as the Drake Equation. And this is an equation to estimate the probability of other intelligent life in the Milky Way galaxy. And this equation takes into account several factors believed to be relevant in determining the likelihood of extraterrestrial civilizations existing at the same time period as us that we can theoretically get in contact with via radio waves. At the time, Drake and his colleagues provided their best estimates for these variables and determined that in the Milky Way galaxy alone, there were between 1,000 and 100 million possible civilizations that we could theoretically get in contact with. These promising results spawned projects like SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And at the onset of projects like SETI, scientists were absolutely confident that if they just listened to the cosmos, they would be able to hear radio signals from distant extraterrestrial societies. And after all these years of their searching and probing, what they found was absolutely nothing. They found no other terrestrial societies sending out radio signals. So the question is, what was their error in understanding? These scientists who put together this calculation, they were so overconfident in the possibility of other planets being able to host life, and then from these planets being able to evolve intelligent life, that they put this number at 100%. They said it's an absolute. Ironically, when they actually do more research, they found out two things. One is Earth is a lot more unique than they made it out to be. And secondly, we are still absolutely clueless. How do you go from innate matter to life, let alone intelligent life? As our scientific understanding has progressed in these areas, it has become clear that Earth-like planets are not only more rare than previously supposed, but the likelihood of finding a planet like Earth perfectly suited for both life and scientific progress is so astronomically low that technically we shouldn't even exist. This presented a challenge for materialists who either are forced to admit that our entire existence is an enormous coincidence or resort to the fanciful idea of a multiverse with infinite number of universes, in which case, with endless universes, the probability of anything occurring, including an Earth-like planet with intelligent life, is considered an absolute certainty. So this is their only way around this conundrum. You know, why is it that we don't see uh, the Milky Way galaxy beaming with life? Why is it that we don't have any other signals coming from other uh, extraterrestrial societies? The reason is, even creating an Earth-like planet, you know, let alone one that is uh, suited for scientific discovery, is so astronomically low. And in this talk, I want to talk about a couple things. One is, what is it about the planet Earth that's so unique? You know, what is it that we need in order to have an Earth-like planet? And then secondly, what is it about planet Earth that makes it so well-suited for scientific advancement? And then, God willing, I want to show how this is an example for the challenge that's placed in the Quran when it's cited to produce a surah or a Quran like this. So let's look at what are these facets about planet Earth that make it so, you know, necessary for life. For one, Earth is the only known planet in our solar system with large quantities of liquid water on its surface. This is a vital ingredient for life. And the reason for this is that water possesses certain unique qualities that make it essential for life. 
So for instance, water is a universal solvent, meaning that most things can dissolve within water. And this is necessary for facilitating chemical reactions uh, for life. Water has a high heat capacity, meaning that it can absorb a lot of heat without changing its temperature. And this is absolutely essential for the Earth's climate in stabilizing any severe temperature fluctuations due to the fact that 70% of the surface of the Earth is covered in water. Water also has this weird peculiar nature with its density. It is one of the only substances that becomes less dense when it freezes. And this property ensures that ice floats on the water insulating the bodies of water and providing a suitable habitat for organisms beneath the surface. If water behaved like most other substances and became more dense as it froze, then this could be absolutely detrimental to any aquatic life. The other piece of water that's uh, peculiar is its surface tension. It's because of the surface tension that water can travel up capillaries because water sticks together. And we consider if water didn't have this property, we wouldn't have trees or plants and, you know, water would actually sink all the way to the center of the earth. And it's because of this property that we're able to tap into these reserves of water. In Surah 67, verse 30, it says, what if your water sinks away? Who will provide you with pure water? This is a question we have to ask. If water didn't have this property, we wouldn't have life uh, on this planet, let alone any planet. Water also serves as a pH buffer helping to maintain a stable pH level in organisms and ecosystems. It resists large changes in acidity or alkalinity, providing a suitable environment for biochemical reactions. And the last point that I just want to bring up, the unique quality of water, is that of evaporation. That through the process of evaporation, pure water can be purified and recycled. When our water evaporates, it transitions from liquid to gas, leaving impurities and contaminants behind. Substances such as minerals, pollutants, and dissolved solids are generally left behind as water molecules separate and rise as vapor. This process perpetually purifies our water and gives us fresh water to drink. In Surah 25 verse 53 it says, He is the one who merges the two seas. One is fresh and palatable, while the other is salty and undrinkable. And he separated them with a formidable and viable barrier. Now, most people think that this is, has to do with the salt water and the, the uh, fresh water not mixing, but it actually has to do with the concept of evaporation. And if you look at 1522, it reads, and we send the winds as pollinators and cause water to come down from the sky for you to drink. Otherwise, you could not keep it palatable, right? This is the function of evaporation. This is the function that the properties of water serves in order to facilitate life. So let's go back to the other qualities that make planet Earth unique. Earth is the only planet in our solar system equipped with tectonic plates. The movement of Earth's tectonic plates help regulate the planet's temperature, the carbon cycle, nutrient distribution, and the formation of mountains. This contributes to Earth's ongoing geological activity, including volcanic eruptions and tectonic movements contributing to the recycling of nutrients and creating diverse habitats. In Surah 27, verse 88, it reads, When you look at the mountains, you think that they are standing still, but they are moving like the clouds. Such is the manufacture of God who perfected everything. He is fully cognizant of everything you do. In Surah 21, verse 31, it reads, And we place on earth stabilizers, mountains, lest it tumbles with them, and we place straight roads therein that they may be guided. Praise God, consider how awesome this system is. We have all this minerals and elements and nutrients locked up in the Earth's mantle. 
as the plates are shifting, it's pushing the sediment up. Then the water comes from uh, uh, rain and it dissolves the sediment and it, it seeds this throughout the entire world for other organisms to benefit from. And this is all within the design that God created. Uh, you know, the fact that we have clouds, the clouds when they come in contact with the, uh, the mountains, they form water and dew and rain. And then from that, again, you have these, this distribution of uh, nutrients. And it continues in 2132, it says, And we rendered the sky a guarded ceiling, yet they are totally oblivious to all the portents. This concept of the sky as a guarded ceiling, it has a lot of different ways that we can comprehend this. Earth possesses a strong magnetic field, and this is generated from the Earth's iron core that shields it from harmful solar radiation, protecting the life on the surface of planet Earth. And the reason we have this magnetic field is because uh, the core of the Earth is iron. And when the Earth rotates, this creates a dynamo effect, which is driven by the movement of molten iron within the Earth's outer core. The rotation of Earth plays a crucial role in creating this magnetic field. So it's not just that the Earth has this iron core, it's the fact that the Earth is also rotating. So for instance, if we look at the moon, we see that only one side of the moon always faces the earth. This is because the moon is tidally locked to the earth. This phenomenon is due to the gravitational forces between the earth and the moon. And as a result, the moon takes the same amount of time to complete one rotation on its axis as it does to complete one orbit around the earth. So because of this, we're always going to see one side of the moon. And if this was the case with earth, that if Earth was uh, tidal locked to the uh, sun, then not only would this make the Earth uninhabitable because one side would be too hot and the other side would be too cold, but we would also lose the magnetic field of the Earth. And the Earth's magnetic field serves as another function as well. It's crucial in navigation as it provides a reference for compasses and aids in the navigation of migratory animals. In Surah 2, verse 164, it reads, In the creation of the heavens and the earth, the alternation of the night and the day, the ships that roam the ocean for the benefit of the people, the water that God sends down from the sky to revive dead land and to spread in it all kinds of creatures, the manipulation of the winds and the clouds that are placed between the sky and the earth. There are sufficient proofs for people who understand. All these things work together in order to create a habitable planet for us to, to thrive and survive. But there is even more to that. If you look at the ozone layer in Earth's atmosphere, a lot of this also filters out the, the harmful radiation, which could be crucial in the protection of life. But there's other facets. Uh, consider the planet Jupiter. In addition to the sun and the moon, uh, this planet serves as a bodyguard from comets and asteroids that could threaten life on Earth. For instance, in July 1994, the comet Shoemaker collided with Jupiter. And if it was not for this gas giant's strong gravitational pull, if any fragments from Shoemaker was to uh, impact Earth, it would have caused a mass annihilation, if not total annihilation, from planet Earth. But luckily, we were able to sit at a comfortable location and observe this entire cosmic event and be able to learn from it and study it and God willing be appreciative that it didn't mean the end of life here on earth. But also another unique characteristic of uh, planet earth is that we have a very relatively large size moon that it's roughly one fourth the size of the planet earth. 
And this moon also, it deflects a lot of possible uh, harmful asteroids and comets that could impact uh, the Earth, you know, threatening life. But there's another function of the moon is that it causes a 23 and a half degree tilt on planet Earth that gives us the four seasons such that, you know, either the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere is going to be pointing more towards the sun during half its rotation and then flipped on the other half. But the moon's gravitational force also causes tidal movement in the Earth's ocean. And this serves for nutrient distribution, oxygenation of uh, coastal ecosystems, and the creation of diverse habitats. That these tidal rhythms also play a role in the reproductive cycles of marine organisms. In the presence of a large moon, it stabilizes the Earth's rotation, preventing significant variations or wobbling in the planet's spin. This gives us a consistent day and night cycle that's crucial for development and sustaining organisms adapted to daily rhythms. It also uh, keeps the Earth's temperature relatively stable. And this has an impact on the winds. The winds on Earth follow atmospheric circulation patterns. These circulation patterns are driven by a combination of, of factors, including the rotation of the Earth, the distribution of the heat, and the influence of large-scale pressure systems. And because of this, because of these uh, winds, we're able to have uh, uh, ships sail through the sea, which was absolutely essential for the migration of human beings and also for trade and commerce. And it just happens that we have these uh, patterns, these circular patterns of the uh, winds that allow people to be able to go uh, to and fro from locations across continents. And it reads in Surah 42, verse 32 through 33, it says, Among his proofs are the ships that sail in the sea like flags. If he willed, he could have stilled the winds, leaving them motionless on top of the water. These are proofs for those who are steadfast appreciative. In Surah 30, verse 46, it says, Among his proofs is that he sends the winds with good omen to shower you with his mercy and to allow the ships to run in the sea in accordance with his rules and for you to seek his bounties through commerce that you may be appreciative. And this has to do again with certain aspects of planet Earth that were negated when they were considering other planets that could potentially host intelligent life. But the other facet of the Drake equations was that Earth has certain properties that make it uh, perfect for the advancement of scientific uh, discovery. So for instance, the Earth is perfectly situated in our location within the Milky Way galaxy in order for us to be able to observe the universe. And there's a lot of factors at play. If, for instance, the uh, atmosphere was more opaque, we wouldn't be able to see, you know, uh, outside of maybe, you know, the, the, the brightest stars. But then secondly, where we're situated at the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, we can distinguish the stars within our galaxies from those that are outside of our galaxy. And it gives us a perfect viewpoint. Like imagine this, because one side of the Earth always faces the uh, sun, we get darkness, we get night. And because of that, again, we can peer into the, uh, the uh, cosmos and see what's out there. If we were bombarded by perpetual light, we would have no clue what is beyond uh, our, our immediate atmosphere. And one of the unique qualities of planet Earth, again, for scientific discoveries, that Earth is the only planet in the entire solar system that has a perfect solar eclipse. And it just happens to correspond with the one time in Earth's history where this phenomenon occurs, that there's intelligent life ready to harness scientific advancement because of a perfect solar eclipse. And it just happens that these proportions at this time are perfect, that the uh, moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, but it's 400 times closer than the sun as well. 
And because of this, from our vantage point, it looks like the sun and the moon are the same size, such that at the right time, at the right place, when the sun and the moon align, the moon blocks out everything from the sun except for the chromosphere. And from the chromosphere of the sun, we're able to determine that the sun was made out of uh, hydrogen and helium. And also in 1919, we were able to confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity. And then from that discovery, right, we have Hubble who was looking at the, the, what they didn't know at the time, but there were stars ended up being galaxies that they had this red shift. They, their light spectrum was shifting towards the red. And since we knew that stars were made out of hydrogen and helium, and we knew that, okay, this uh, indicated that these stars were moving further and faster away from planet Earth. When we extracted all this in reverse, we concluded that this is actually the signs of the Big Bang. And again, we read in the Quran in 2130, it says, do the unbelievers not realize that the heaven and earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence? And from water, we made all living things. Would they believe? The other interesting facet of planet Earth is that our atmosphere is made of 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen. And oxygen is absolutely essential for complex life. And you need a certain level of oxygen in order to be able to have these advanced uh, uh, organisms like human beings. That if the oxygen was too low, uh, then we wouldn't be able to advance uh, life on this planet. And as for the uh, nitrogen, because it's an inert gas, it doesn't uh, react. Uh, it's able and it doesn't also, it's not opaque. Not only can we still see the, uh, the, the night sky, uh, it doesn't hinder it. But because it doesn't react with the, the uh, uh, oxygen, you know, we can breathe it and it's not a problem. Um, if any of this was different, right, it could cause severe challenges for life to be able to advance. But then oxygen serves another crucial factor. It allows us to harness fire. And there's an absolute sweet spot where it's necessary to have the oxygen level within the atmosphere in order to be able to harness fire. And this is perfectly suited also with the upper bound of what's necessary for uh, intelligent life. So for instance, right now we have 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. If this number was 18.5%, the likeliness of combustion drops uh, dramatically. And below 16%, it's not very likely you're going to be able to even start a fire. On the flip side of that, above 22%, so just 1% higher than where we are, the uh, uh, oxygen levels become dangerous to the point that the slightest spark can cause a massive fire. So it just happens that this 21% range is not only perfectly suited for intelligent life to flourish, but it's also perfectly suited in order to be able to harness fire, which is essential if a civilization needs to advance. That without the harnessing of fire, the likeliness of that society advancing technologically, scientifically uh, diminishes. And there are other unique qualities of planet Earth that aren't necessary for uh, life, but they're absolutely necessary for the advancement, the scientific and technological advancement of life. So for instance, uh, out of the 118 elements in the periodic table, it just happens that Earth contains 94 of these elements naturally. And if you look, you know, to create the most simplistic forms of life, uh, you, there are six major elements that are necessary, but like in a human being, there's about 25 elements that are needed for a healthy human being. But a single organism, I believe it requires around 16 elements. So all these other abundance of elements that are here readily available on Earth that aren't necessary for life, but become absolutely critical for scientific advancement. So for instance, iridium, nickel, tin, silver, and gold, you know, these aren't necessary. These aren't ingredients for life. 
but they're absolutely essential if you want to have scientific advancement because they become key components in electronics and instrumentation that we use to better understand our world. Like imagine living on Earth, but there were no computers, there were no uh, uh, telecommunication, uh, there was no way of uh, uh, sending radio signals. That would be incredibly detrimental in the aspect of how a human, human civilization would progress beyond the uh, Stone Age. So all this shows that when they did these original equations, they were really downplaying the uniqueness of planet Earth and the uniqueness that was necessary for us to be able to reach this level of technological sophistication. And when they rerun these numbers, right, they realized, they said, okay, we goofed. Uh, life is not abundant on, uh, uh, not only in the Milky Way galaxy, it's probably not abundant at all in the entire universe. So they came up with these other theories about a multiverse, an infinite number of universes to circumvent this problem. But this is not new to this paradigm. Oftentimes, human beings, before we really get into the weeds on stuff, we think that we think that overtly slight. And then the deeper we look, the, 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 the further down the rabbit hole we go, we just realize the sheer level of complexity that's there that we just didn't appreciate. You know, when Darwin did wrote his Origins of Species, in a letter he was saying that, you know, the, the cell was just a simple protoplasm, uh, didn't realize the complexity that each cell operates as if it's a standalone uh, uh, city. It has all kinds of facets, all kinds of uh, technology that allows the cell to suffice. And it's only when did we get deeper into the knowledge base do we realize, you know, just how absolutely marvelous these things are. And this brings us to the second half of the talk. And it has to do with the uniqueness of the Quran. Now, there's a series of challenges proposed in the Quran, which ask someone that if they have any doubt about this Quran, to either produce one surah like these, or 10 surahs like this, or a Quran like this. And the first verse that has this challenge is Surah 2, verse 23. It says, if you have any doubt regarding what we reveal to our servant, then produce one surah like these and call upon your own witnesses against God if you are truthful. In Surah 10, verse 38, it says, If they say he fabricated it, say then produce one surah like these and invite whomever you wish other than God if you are truthful. In Surah 11, verse 13, it says, If they say he fabricated the Quran, then tell them, then produce ten surahs like these, fabricated, and invite whomever you can other than God if you are truthful. And finally, in Surah 17, verse 88, it says, Say, if all the humans and all the jinns banded together in order to produce a Quran like this, they can never produce anything like it, no matter how much assistance they lent one another. For generations, when people read these verses, they thought that the challenge was only limited to the linguistic aspect of the Quran and were oblivious to the multitude of other facets that make the Quran unique and impossible to imitate. And this is not much different than the follies scientists and astronomers have made in the past, right? When they did the Drake equations, they said, look, the Milky Way galaxy is riddled with life. And similarly, when people hear this challenge, they think if it's only limited to the linguistic excellence of the Quran, there's many people who took up this challenge. And for someone who doesn't know 7th century classical Arabic, how are they going to be able to distinguish if this is better than some other version, right? Yeah, it sounds nice. But is the Quran all that is? Something that sounds nice? What inspired me to, to make this episode was there was this, um, uh, I saw it on Twitter, I think it was originally from a TikTok. There was a guy, he was debating someone on the street and he gave them this challenge that they could never produce a uh, surah like that of the Quran. And some bystander said, hey, I believe that challenge was already uh, uh, fulfilled. And he gave this example, it's kind of funny. In the Hadith corpus, uh, Umar is said to have uh, prophesied 
the coming of several of the verses of the Quran. Uh, you'll see in one hadith that he says three verses, and then you'll see like some four or five uh, in other hadith that in, he's claiming that, look, I, I came up with this idea for this verse, and then God confirmed this verse. And what's funny is this traditionalist, the guy says, yeah, you have a good point. And he, he kind of conceded. He said, yeah, you know, Umar created a surah like these. Because from their perspective, it's like, look, you look at the shortest surah of the Quran, it's three verses. You know, Umar uh, prophesied the coming of three to five verses before they were revelation of the Quran. So therefore, Umar uh, created a surah like that of the Quran before it was revealed. And the whole problem of this premise is that they completely fail to understand that this challenge is far beyond the linguistic aspect of the Quran. The miraculous nature of the Quran is not just linguistic excellence, but many other factors we are coming to understand. And the more we research this book, the more facets we discover are embedded inside this book that make it impossible to imitate. So for instance, we looked at the previous verses regarding the scientific signs that God is pointing to in the Quran. Yet this was far ahead, whatever they understood in 7th century Arabia. And some of these we, we didn't even cover. So for instance, the Quran talks about uh, the uh, how dark energy, uh, it's able to hold up the universe. Uh, it talks about black holes. And then also the verse that we read in 2130 regarding the Big Bang. But there's another facet that, uh, again, is, is far beyond anything someone in 7th century Arabia could come up with. And this has to do with the concept of iron. Uh, Surah 57 of the Quran is entitled Al-Hadid. And this is translated as the iron. Iron is the 26th element on the periodic table. And in Arabic, you have something known as the abjad system. This is where each letter of the Arabic uh, um, language, it corresponds to a number similar to Roman numerals. So for instance, Aleph has a value of one, Be has a value of two. And if you look at the geometrical value of the word Hadid, which is iron, you see that this has a value of 26, which corresponds with the 26th element on the periodic table, which is iron. And if you look at the word Al-Hadid, right, the, the title of the surah, it has the geometrical value of 57. And this is the 57th chapter of the Quran. Now, what else is interesting is the Quran has 114 surahs. If you divide 114 by 2, you get 57. So meaning that the halfway surah of the Quran is Al-Hadid. Now, if you look at the earth and you do a cross section of the earth, uh, what you find is that it has an iron core, that 91% of the core is made of iron. And then we read Surah 57 verse 25 says, we have sent our messengers supported by clear proofs and we sent down to them the scripture and the law that the people may uphold justice. And we sent down the iron wherein there is strength and many benefits for the people. All this in order for God to distinguish those who support him and his messengers on faith. God is powerful, almighty. So not only is it indicating that iron, just like every other element we have on this planet was sent down, but it's showing that this is where there is strength. And then again, this is where the strength of the planet Earth comes, where we get the magnetic field and all this. It's, it's embedded inside the Quran. But the Quran has another facet. So we have the scientific, right? We have the embedded scientific information. We also have prophecy. So the Quran contains prophecies that were foretold in advance, most notably that of the defeat of the Romans, followed by their overcoming and how this corresponds with the victory of the believers over Mecca. Uh, we talked about this in a previous episode entitled The Lowest Land, which is also interesting that this is what's referenced in the uh, Surah 30, that they will be defeated in the lowest land. And if you look at where this defeat occurred, this is in the uh, Dead Sea region, which is the lowest land on earth, and specifically the lowest city on earth is that of Jericho. 
meaning that this was not even known until we had satellites to be able to determine what locale in the entire planet is the lowest land that God is calling it out in the verse of the Quran. Another prophecy in the Quran is Surah 54, that of the splitting of the moon. It says, the hours come closer and the moon has split. Then they saw a great miracle, but they turned away and said old magic. And if you look, this corresponds with the uh, departure of Apollo 11 from the, 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 the surface of the moon on July 21st, 1969. When Apollo 11 departed from the moon, it took with it 21 kilograms of moon rock. And again, we talked about this in a previous episode, that if you look, the exact moment this happened was at 54 minutes and one second. And if you look at chapter 54, verse 1, it says the hour has come closer and the moon has split. And what makes this so fascinating is they have data logs from uh, NASA uh, Naval Observatory exactly by the second indicating every single thing that happened. And you see that at 54-1, the moon split. So this is another variable of the Quran, that if someone wanted to imitate a Quran like this, they would have to not only have the scientific findings, they'd have to have embedded scientific information, uh, they would also have to have prophecies. And there's more, right? It doesn't stop just here. So another big challenge that the Quran poses is that if someone wants to create a surah or Quran like this, can they produce something that uh, uh, passes the test of time? And what does this mean? You know, you think about how many literary works were created that never got traction. They were lost, they were forgotten. And unlike that, the Quran is by far the most vastly, widely transmitted text in the history of the world. No other text has been memorized by more human beings than the Quran. No other text in history has been so well preserved as that of the Quran. Meaning if someone wants to, you know, create a quote-unquote surah like this, the challenge is, Will they still, will people still be acting upon and memorizing and living their life by this text 1400 years later? And realistically, this becomes a challenge that you see that the further along we go, the harder it becomes to replicate this Quran. Because how are you going to replicate that? You'd have to create the text. You would have to wait 1400 years and see, is this text as widely central to, you know, so many people's lives as the Quran has been? And there's more. It continues on. So, so, you know, we have other facets. There's the numerical structure of the Quran. It's known that the Quran has certain numerical uh, combinations uh, that, for instance, I'll give a simple example, that both Adam and Jesus are mentioned 25 times in the Quran. And this is done deliberately. In Surah 3, verse 59, it says, The example of Jesus, as far as God is concerned, is the same as that of Adam. He created him from dust and said to him, Be, and he was. And this is as a rebuttal to those who claim that Jesus is God's son because he didn't have a father. And the rebuttal to this is, well, look, Adam didn't have a mother or father, and God simply said to him, be, and he was. So the fact that both Adam uh, and Jesus occur 25 times in the Quran is a sign for that. Now, what's interesting is this uh, occurrence in 359 is the seventh occurrence of both Adam and Jesus. Now, if we look at the 19th occurrence, what we find is that it happens in chapter 19 for both Adam and Jesus. One is in 1934, the other one is in 1958, and the number of verses between these two is 25. Now, we're going to get more into the concept of the number 19 as the last point, but there's another facet of the Quran that shows, again, that every word has been deliberately selected the number of times that it occurs within the Quran. Uh, another one is that the word month in the singular form occurs 12 times in the Quran, corresponding to the 12 months in the year. 
The term day, yom, in the singular form occurs 365 times in the Quran, and this is equal to the number of days in a solar year. The plural form of the word day, and in Arabic you have days and you have uh, two days because uh, they have a dual form. Uh, if you add these plural forms, you see that it occurs 30 times in the Quran, which corresponds to the average length of a month. But then also the Quran recognizes both a solar and a lunar year. If you count the number of times that the word day in the singular form occurs, between the first occurrence of the word month, which occurs in Surah 2 verse 80, uh, 185, and the last occurrence of the word month, uh, which is in Surah 97 verse 3, and again that's the singular form of month, you see that the number of times that day is mentioned in the singular form between these two months is 354, which is the number of days in the lunar year. And consider that the Quran was revealed over a span of 23 years that was the prophet keeping track of all the occurrences of the word month in the singular form, all the occurrences of the word day in the uh, singular form, and the number of times that day occurs within the first occurrence of the uh, word month in the singular form and the last occurrence of the word month in the singular form. It's absurd, right? This shows that, again, there was this deliberate design uh, embedded inside the Quran from the first day. And uh, if you look, so if you add all the different forms of the word day in the Quran, you get 475, which is 19 times 25. So, and so far, we brought up this number 19 twice, once in the uh, occurrence of the names of Adam and Jesus, and now in the concept of the number of times the, that day occurs in all its forms. So what is this number 19? One of the first revelations, if not possibly the first revelation of the Quran, was Surah 74. This surah is entitled Al-Mudathir, The Hidden Secret. Mudathir means something that's hidden in plain sight, means you're looking at it, but you don't see it. And the theme of this surah is that the human being whom God blessed with money and children, uh, that he was greedy, he was a disbeliever, that he goes, he analyzes the Quran, and he makes this following conclusion. He says, the Quran, it's clever magic, it's human made. And God's rebuttal to this claim is a simple statement, over it is 19. And this is in Surah 74, verse 30, and it continues on with uh, five reasons for this number 19. It says, we appointed angels to be guardians of hell, and we assigned their number. 19. And it gives five reasons. So one, to disturb the disbelievers. Two, to convince the Christians and Jews that this is the divine scripture. Three, to strengthen the faith of the faithful. Four, to remove all trace of doubt from the hearts of Christians, Jews, as well as the believers. And five, to expose those who harbor doubt in their hearts. And the disbelievers, they will say, what did God mean by this allegory? God thus sends astray whoever wills and guides whoever wills. None knows the soldiers of your Lord except he this is a reminder for the people. And it says, absolutely swear by the sun as it shines and the morning as it breathes. This is one of the great miracles, a warning to the human race. Now, a lot of people, they think that these this reference to 19 has to do with 19 angels. But it's a simple question. How is 19 angels going to disturb the disbelievers? How is it going to convince the Christians and Jews that this book is a divine scripture? And how is this a rebuttal to someone who claims that this book is human made? It's clever magic. Right? It shows that the number is what causes this thing. That going to someone who's Christian and saying, hey, uh, there's 19 angels guardian hell, is not going to change their faith. It's not going to do anything to them. But if I show them that the number 19 is called out in this Quran, that's been sitting in this book for 1,400 years, is uh, that the entire Quran is structured by this number, this will have this effect. So, for instance, if we just look at uh, Surah 74 and the phenomenon around the number 19, what we find is that 7431, where it gives these five reasons for the number 19, 
This consists of 57 words, which is 19 times 3. The first 19 verses of Surah 74 also contains 57 words, which is 19 times 3. The number of words from the beginning of the Surah in 74.1 to exactly where it mentions the number 19 is exactly 95 words, which is 19 times 5. The number of letters from the beginning of Surah 74 to the word 19 is exactly 361 letters, which is 19 times 19. But that's not all. It's not just this chapter that has this phenomenon around the number 19. For instance, the Quran has uh, 114 chapters, which is 19 times 6. It has 6,346 verses, which is 19 times 334. If you look at the opening statement of the Quran, Bismillah Rahman Rahim, this has exactly 19 letters. If you look at the occurrence of these uh, three of the words, Allah occurs 2,698 times in the Quran, which is 19 times 142. Ar-Rahman occurs in the Quran 57 times, which is 19 times 3, and Rahim occurs 114 times, which is 19 times 6. But this just lays the groundwork for the number 19. The main function of the number 19 is the preservation of the Quran, and this predominantly has to do with the Quranic initials. These are the mysterious Quranic initials. They uh, are sitting on the top of 29 chapters, and they consist of 14 different sets of initials. So, for instance, if you look at chapter 2, it's the longest chapter in the entire Quran. It starts with Alif Lam Mim, A-L-M. If you go to uh, Surah 28, it's uh, entitled Tasin Mim. If you go to Surahs 40 through 46, you have the initials Ha Mim. And each one of these initials in their respective chapters occur in multiples of 19. And it's worth mentioning that this challenge in the Quran to either produce a surah like this or to produce 10 surahs like this, that these challenge, these three times that this challenge occurs, it occurs only in the initialed chapters of the Quran. And this, I can't believe, is a coincidence. So for instance, Surah 42 and Surah 50 have the initial qulf or Q in English. If you look at Surah 50, it's uh, half the length of Surah 42. But the number of times that the letter Qof occurs in each of these chapters is 57, which is 19 times 3. And obviously, if you add 57 plus 57, you get 114, which is 19 times 6. And it's worth mentioning that the opening statement of Surah 50 is Qof in the glorious Quran. That this is in reference to the Quran with 114 <laughs> chapters. Uh, even the word Majid has a geometrical value of 57. But also, if you look, Surah 53 has 42 verses, and Surah 50 has 45 verses. If you add the Surah number and the number of verses for each of these two Surahs, you get 95, which is 19 times 5. And even if you add all the cues in every 19th verse of the entire Quran, you find that there's 76 cues across the entire Quran, which is 19 times 4. And this kind of structure is found in every single set of Quranic initials. And I'm just showing the one or going over the one with the letter Q. Uh, we can continue. So, for instance, in Surah 42, it is the only chapter with two sets of initials. The first set is Hamim, which uh, occurs in chapters 40 through 46. And the second set is Ain Sin Qof. This is the only chapter in the entire Quran that has this set, Ain Sin Qof. If you add all the Ains, all the Sins, all the Qofs, uh, in chapter 42, you get 209, which is 19 times 11. 
If you add all the ha memes in surahs 40 through 46, you get 2147, which is 19 times 113. Now, what else is interesting is that this discovery of the 19 based miracle uh, was sitting in the Quran for 1406 lunar years. The year that this was discovered was 1974. And again, this is chapter 74 is the only chapter in the entire Quran that mentions the number 19. Now, 1974 corresponds to exactly 1,406 lunar years from the revelation of the Quran, which is, again, 19 times 74. So, 1,406 is equal to 19 times 74. It is impossible for someone to be able to uh, forge this because of these factors, meaning that if someone wanted to create a Quran like this, the, the bar is set so high for them to be able to have these kinds of uh, miraculous aspects of whatever text they do, they will never be able to achieve it. And this came as the more we studied the Quran, we understood more of its unique qualities. If we limit the Quran strictly to its just linguistics excellence, then we don't fully understand what this challenge entails. No different than the people who are looking for Earth-like planets, thinking that, oh, as long as there's liquid water, that's good enough for them to be able to uh, have life. And if you have life, then eventually it's just going to create intelligent life. It was an oversimplification of the challenge. And this is what most people still do to date when they see this challenge in the Quran. They think to create a Quran like this, that all it takes is something that sounds like the Quran. And they negate all these other miraculous aspects of the Quran. And there's one other thing that's worth emphasizing. The supposed author of this Quran, the Prophet, he had no clue about any of these facets that we just went over. He didn't know regarding the scientific uh, uh, information embedded inside the Quran. He didn't know anything about the periodic tables. He didn't know that chapter 54 was corresponding to the uh, landing and the departure of the moon by Apollo 11. He didn't know that the lowest land on earth was exactly where this event was to take place. He didn't know about the numerical combinations of the Quran. He didn't know that the number of times a day in the singular form occurs is 365 or that month occurs 12 times. You know, these are discoveries that were uh, figured out later. And he had no clue about the code 19 and how this served as a preservation mechanism for the Quran. He didn't know what the, the, the meaning of these initials were. This was destined to be discovered exactly 1,406 lunar years, 19 times 74, from the revelation of the Quran. And all this shows is that if someone wanted to produce a book like the Quran or a surah like this Quran, they would have to produce something that generations later would still be able to extract new amazing information out of without the author even being aware that it's inside this text. So we can already conclude that no one is able to meet this challenge because the second they even start their experiment, we're going to have to wait 1400 years to see how it pans out. And I can already give you the answer. It's not going to bode well. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, uh, you want to get in touch, please join us on our Discord server. Uh, we're getting close to 3,000 members. We have uh, active uh, discussions on a regular basis. We do Quran studies. Uh, it's a great place to be able to find like-minded people. Uh, if you want to get a deeper look at the uh, verse of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want to get notes from today's talk, you can go to Quran Talk blog. And until next time, peace and God bless.